to the Every Word Podcast. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Every Word Podcast. We are so excited to be back with you guys this week on the show. Um, it's good. It's going to be me and Brother Ethan like normal. We are going to be digging right back into the book of Genesis. Believe it or not, we are roughly 80% done with this book. Um, I know. Exciting. It's exciting. It's it's kind of sad, though. Uh, I'll, be, I'll miss Genesis whenever we uh, exit our way out of it. It's been a really fun book to dig into, learned a whole lot out of it, and uh, still got a lot of good things left to learn before uh, before we leave it behind. But um, definitely, definitely a big, big, big milestone as we are, are kind of entering into the final chapters of Genesis. And with that being said, uh, this week our episode is going to be in Genesis chapter 40. So uh, without a lot of further ado, what I am going to do, I will go ahead and read Genesis chapter 40. It's a pretty short chapter, so I don't expect this to be a very long episode this week. Um, But with it being a short chapter and the way the chapter is structured, it's basically one long story. So I think it's going to be best if we go ahead and read it in its entirety. And then as soon as I do that, I'll turn it over to my buddy Ethan. He'll share his thoughts and then he'll turn it back over to me and I'll share my thoughts. And then we will bring this bad boy in for a landing. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to get started in Genesis chapter 40. And like always, um, you know, our repeat listeners, you guys know, but if we got anybody new out there in podcast land, we do live, we do read out of the New Living Translation. So if you want to follow along, that is the version to pick us up in. And we are going to get started. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. All right, so Genesis 40 and 1 says, Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw that them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today? He asked them. And they said, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a great vine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, and I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so that he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison. But I did nothing to deserve it. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such a positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. In my dream, there were these three white or three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. The top basket contained all kinds of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them, ate them from the basket on my head. This is what the dream means, Joseph told him. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. Then birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. 
But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted the dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. All right, Brother Ethan, I will turn it over to you. All right, so if... Y'all don't remember, uh, Joseph has been thrown into prison. Um, he was accused of trying to rape uh, Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar gets mad, throws him into prison. But, of course, Joseph is innocent, and while he's in prison, uh, God shows him some favor, and the jailer there actually lets him kind of exercise some authority, even there uh, in prison among the other prisoners. So... This chapter starts out with telling us that um, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker, they, quote, offend Pharaoh, uh, which is uh, just kind of a, a funny term. Uh, they, they get thrown into prison and they get thrown uh, into the same prison as Joseph. And so, uh, you know, when I was reading this, I was like, man, you know, that seems really harsh to uh, just throw people in prison because they offend uh, somebody. So, I, you know, just kind of questioning if that were the, the best translation. I looked at the Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is chata, uh, and uh, that word that's there for offend. And it also means to sin against somebody. And so uh, when I was reading this, I, you know, I just have to ask myself, you know, what crime did these two men commit against uh, the king? You know, when I read offending, it just seemed really, really minor. And uh, but sinning against Pharaoh, I mean, that sounds much more serious. So, uh, just to kind of give you a background on the roles of the baker and the cupbearer. So, the baker was in charge of preparing Pharaoh's food, um, and the cupbearer was the one who brought Pharaoh's drink uh, to him, and he probably likely tasted it before giving it to him. And um, because maliciously poisoned food and drink was always an imminent threat for monarchs. Um, you know, people in these sorts of positions uh, that were kind of in charge of giving Pharaoh his, uh, his necessary food and drink uh, were likely high-ranking officials from prominent families within Egypt. And so, in other words, these men were likely actually certainly very trustworthy in Pharaoh's eyes. They came from trustworthy families and they were trustworthy individuals. But it seems like something happened that caused these two men to fall out of Pharaoh's graces. And I think it's possible that it could have been malicious, especially with, uh, with what roles they served uh, or they played in serving Pharaoh. So perhaps it's possible that the, the baker and the cupbearer conspired together against Pharaoh, tried to poison him. Maybe it was just one of these men who attempted doing this, or uh, maybe it was a simple mistake by one of these men. Maybe, you know, Pharaoh ate or drank something that didn't sit well with him. Maybe he perceived that they tried to kill him. And so, or maybe he was just really ticked off after, you know, fighting uh, Pharaoh's revenge for 48 hours because he ate something uh, the baker didn't prepare well. So whatever the reason... Uh, uh, the cupbearer and the baker get thrown in prison and presumably they're awaiting trial for their alleged crimes. So Joseph there in the prison, he's put in charge of these two men uh, because he's found favor in the jailer's sight. So Joseph was not only over these two men, not only was he in a position of authority over them, but the Bible says, at least in the NLT, it says he looked after them. 
Now, the Hebrew word there is sharat, which actually means to minister to somebody or to serve somebody. And so, in other words, Joseph wasn't abusing his authority, even though he was in the position to do so. Instead, Joseph used his authority to serve others. This really reminds me, and we've been talking a lot about how Joseph really is an amazing uh, type of Jesus. He really, his, his life really exemplifies and foreshadows much of the life of Jesus. And so this note here that he's serving other people reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. And it's a hymn in which Paul talks about Jesus, who in fact was God, instead of exercising his godlike powers and uh, demanding worship and adoration, he instead humbles himself and becomes a servant. And so this is what the passage says, and I'm reading from the NIV uh, just because uh, it makes it really clear. It says, in your relationships, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was God, and though he could have exercised his divine prerogatives, he instead humbled himself and took the appearance of a servant. Uh, Even that word could be translated as a slave, just like Joseph. Jesus was showing us that serving others is what is most important. Uh, that although we may be kings and queens, queens and joint heirs with Jesus, our likeness shouldn't be that of royalty, but that of a servant. So one day Joseph notices that the men are distressed and, and, and it's because they had troubling dreams that night. And so Joseph asked them to tell him their dreams, reassuring that the interpretation belongs to God and, and therefore he's implying that his God would reveal the meaning of the dreams. And I think this is a very humble line from Joseph. He's recognizing that his propensity to have dreams and also his ability to correctly interpret these dreams is from God alone. And so once again, Joseph is giving God the glory and also, once again, foreshadowing how Jesus performed his earthly ministry. So, you know, we're one as Pentecostals. We understand Jesus to be the one God of the Old Testament. We understand him to be the Father uh, who's incarnate. And uh, as the supreme solitary being of the universe, uh, you know, he had every right to demand worship and adoration. But Jesus doesn't do that. And instead, it's very it's very interesting to read and to watch. He always defers the glory that others are trying to give him, and he reflects it to God. And so even though he is God, that he was God, he was demonstrating what it meant to be a true son of God. And I think that's really important, is that Jesus, as God, came to show us what it means to be a son of God. He was that only begotten son of God, this 
special and unique son of God. He was the perfect representation of God, and he was showing us what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. And so what he was doing, even though he, even though he was God and he was reflecting that glory to God, he was trying not to garner glory for himself, but to deflect it upward so that God may receive the glory. He was being humble. And so some people ask why there's, there's no instance, no verse of Jesus saying, Hey, I'm God. Right. You know, there's, there's no verse like that in the Bible, no verse at all that where Jesus claims to be God. At least that explicitly, right? You know, he has some I am statements in, in, in the book of John, but really there's no statement of him saying, I'm God, no statement at all. And so, uh, and, and this idea that Jesus is showing us what it means to be a servant is exactly why I think Jesus never says that. So Jesus is our example. He's the pattern we're trying to model in our lives. And so even though he was equal to God, he had equality with God, It wasn't something he used to his own advantage. He wasn't trying to take advantage of that. Instead, Jesus lived in total humility and showed us what it meant to be his follower. So continuing on, Joseph hears the dream of the cupbearer and he gives him a favorable report. says Pharaoh was going to lift him up and restore him to his former position. And so the Hebrew for lifting someone up is literally lift your head up. So when you read that in some other translations, it will actually say lift your head up. And so uh, there's some speculation on, ex- on exactly what this uh, phrase means, but I read somewhere that um, this could be an idiom for being judged. And so it's like this reckoning that occurs. And, and so it kind of makes sense, right? You know, the, the cupbearer and the baker, they're accused of a crime. They get thrown in prison until they're kind of judged, right? And uh, they're brought before Pharaoh and their their heads are lifted up and, uh, and they're judged. And uh, one gets a favorable uh, verdict, the other doesn't get a, a very favorable one. And so uh, it's possible that's what it means. It's really unclear exactly uh, what that phrase means. But um, I think I think a judgment makes sense. So in other words, three days, you're going to be judged. Pharaoh is going to judge favor- favorably. And that's the, the, first in- the first dream's interpretation. So the baker then tells his dream to Joseph, and Joseph gives a report that isn't quite as nice as uh, the cupbearers, to say it nicely. Uh, so Joseph tells him that after three days, Pharaoh is going to lift his head up and he's going to impale him or, or hang him as, as some other translations say. So, uh, he gets an unfavorable, uh, uh, judgment from Pharaoh. So this whole contrasting between the, the two men here and their dreams and their ultimate destinations, their ultimate fates, Kind of, it reminds me of two different things. So the, the first one is that I'm reminded of when Jesus was on the cross hanging between the two thieves. And so you have on one hand, the, the one thief, he believes on Jesus and Jesus tells him that this thief is going to be with him in paradise. However, the other thief ridicules Jesus and doesn't explicitly say, but we are left to assume that this particular thief's fate was not the same as the other thief who believed. And so the illustration here is that when one encounters God, there there are two fates. When you come to the cross of Jesus and you encounter God, you have a decision to make. And there's a decision. One is restoration to life. The other is condemnation to death. And so even though the story in Joseph, here, here with Joseph, seems a little bit more uh, arbitrary, I, I, I think we're meant to understand something here. So we're, we're not 
explicitly told whether one or the other is guilty of a crime. But it seems like to me when the two come before the judgment seat of Pharaoh, right, their heads are lifted up. The the cupbearer is declared innocent while the baker is declared guilty. Obviously, they, they uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh looks at these two people and he decides that baker, yeah, he tried to kill me or something. And so we're kind of left to assume that this was actually the case, that the baker was indeed guilty. So the other thing uh, that this reminds me of is the three-day burial of Jesus. So Jesus was in the prison of the grave for three days, and in a way, he was kind of on trial. So if, if he really were innocent of the crimes he was condemned of, then he suffered unjustly and he would be acquitted, right? So this acquittal would have been the reversal of the punishment he received. And of course, we know that was death. And so Jesus was in the prison for three days being tried, waiting on what his verdict would be. And on the third day, he was raised to life again, proving that he indeed was blameless, that he was sinless. And so Romans in Romans 1, Paul says that Jesus was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so in other words, Jesus' resurrection was the proof that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the spotless Lamb that would save his people from their sin. That was the evidence that he indeed was blameless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we would all be dead in our sins because that would indicate that Jesus truly had sin. But because he had no sin, that punishment uh, was reversed and he was acquitted of the false accusations brought against him. So Joseph, he tells the cupbearer not to forget about him, but to remember him when he returns to Pharaoh's court. But as we find out in the last verse, hey, the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. And this reminded me, uh, you know, all these so many messianic, uh, messianic ideas here in this, in this chapter. This really reminded me of Psalm 16 and 10, uh, which is a verse about Jesus. It says, uh, I quote, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And so this psalm, it's a poem that is a prayer uh, of the Messiah. He's praying to God, and he tells God in the psalm that he won't, uh, or he asks God in the psalm, hey, don't forget about me in Sheol. Uh, And Sheol is the grave, it's death. And so uh, God won't let Messiah's body see decay, but he's going to raise him to life is what that verse is is implying. And so that's exactly how the New Testament folks uh, see this verse. And so Joseph, like the Messiah, he was innocent. And so Joseph tells his cupbearer before he's restored uh, to Pharaoh's court that, hey, uh, I'm innocent. You know, I've been brought here. I've been brought as a slave. Hey, don't forget about me. I didn't commit these crimes. And so while the cupbearer forgot about Joseph, God did not forget about Messiah, but instead raised him from the prison of the grave. And so this idea of the grave being a prison, I really didn't have enough time to like really think about this, but I think there may be something here. So uh, in 1 Peter 3.19, it tells us that Jesus, when he died, he preached to the spirits in prison, right? He's in the grave and there he's preaching to these spirits in prison. That's the terminology Peter uses in the grave. And so uh, there may be a lot of debate on like who these spirits are, but, but Peter seems to be likening the grave, you know, death, hell, to a prison. And uh, it's just something to think about. And maybe uh, you, AJ, or maybe one of, your, one of the listeners, 
makes me wonder how in other biblical stories that contain a prison scene, if, if it could be almost like a literary device that points us forward to Jesus's triumph over the grave, you know? So I, I can't think of specifically, but maybe like, you know, Daniel thrown to the lion's den, almost like this prison, right? He's thrown, thrown down there, right? And then he's raised to life, right? He's brought out of the den, you know, stories like that. I, it just makes me think that maybe if we, you know, just take a few minutes and look at the stories of, um, the, that contain a prison. I wonder if we could find some, some parallels between, uh, Jesus triumph over the grave. So we'd love to hear, uh, some thoughts from y'all, but that's pretty much all I have. So I'll hand it back over to you, AJ. All right. Well, great job as always there, brother Ethan. I really enjoyed your, your breakdown and a lot of the symbology references, um, that you, that you made like again, again, we talked about it so much about how Joseph is, like you say, a, a type of Jesus and how his life and circumstances that he's going through uh, in these chapters that we're reading about, how they mimic uh, so much what we see Jesus going through uh, later down the road. And uh, a lot of your notes uh, that you had were very, very similar to mine. So I'll try not to rehash anything that you you did a great job of covering. Um, but so going back, I guess, towards the beginning of the chapter for, for what I have. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of had the same thoughts as you as far as, you know, um, the the baker and the cupbearer being thrown in prison. You know, why? Why were they thrown in? And along the similar lines of what you talked about, I really couldn't find anything specific. Um, it could have been, like you said, it could have been because of their position and their high-ranking status, they would have had unfettered access to Pharaoh. And thus, if there was an attempt on Pharaoh's life, they would have been orchestrators. They could have been orchestrators or key players within it. Um, so there could have been something like that maybe that had tried to take place. Uh, or like you said, it could have been something as simple as he had an upset stomach based on something he ate and he's just out of a fit of rage. Cause the Bible does say that he was in a bit of rage. Um, so it could have been just an instinctual, like go find the cupbearer, go find the baker, throw him in prison. Cause you know, I'm not feeling well. Um, so we really, we truly don't know. Um, but one thing I did want to point out in verse three says the captain of the palace of the guard assigned these prisoners to Joseph. Now that is essentially Potiphar's title. Um, when you really go back and look at it. Um, so we have additional evidence to back up our thoughts from Genesis chapter 39, where we saw, and he stated that even though Potiphar had to throw Joseph in prison because of his wife's accusations in his heart, he still believed that Joseph was in the right. Otherwise Potiphar never would have allowed Joseph to climb the ranks that he did within that prison. Um, and then in verses five through eight, that you see the tables get turned a little bit for Joseph. Um, that, you know, I think back to Genesis 37, when he was called the dreamer, you know, his brothers came, er, came and approached him and says, here comes the dreamer. Um, but now the dreamer is being surrounded by people that are having dreams but have no interpretation. So it's basically a 180 from just a little bit beforehand when he was in the fields with his brothers. Um, and this is another stepping stone that God has placed for Joseph to ascend to the power of or place of power in Egypt that he's destined for him. And we'll read more about it in Genesis 41. But had 
these two not been in prison with Joseph, there would have been no way. The connection never would have been made for Joseph to have garnered that audience with Pharaoh. Um, you know, you, you have to think about things like that. You know, the way God works and the way he orchestrates and puts just the right people in just the right places. You know, having that cupbearer being in that prison while Joseph was in there is exactly the situation that he needed to line up so that when the time came, which we'll read about in the next chapter, when Pharaoh dreams and needs an interpretation, that the cupbearer is there and says, I remember. Um, but, you know, when I thought about this, it ties back to my thoughts from Genesis 37 when Reuben... Um, uh, we saw where Reuben wanted to save Joseph. He wanted to hide him away and uh, in the cistern and then circle back around when his brothers were gone and come and save him. But God saw fit for Joseph to be sold into slavery. And even though the road, and I said this in that episode, even though the road Joseph had to take was rough, it's the path that led him to a seat of greater authority and power than he could have ever achieved had Reuben succeeded in saving Joseph. So, you know, back to that thought from that episode, you know, sometimes the easy path, we're always going to want the easy path being the flesh that we are. We always want the easy road. We always want the easy way out. Um, but that's not always the path that God intends for us. God intends for us to sometimes have to go through a little bit more, but there's always a greater reward on the other side if we just stick with him and we believe um, that he is going to carry us through. And we know that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So um, on down in verse 8, Joseph says something very powerful, and you you touched on this when you broke it down in your notes, when he says that interpreting dreams is God's business. I thought that was so that was such a good moment for Joseph to um, to really give God the glory in that opportunity. He could have allowed his prior experience with dreams to give him this false notion that he could interpret this dream on his own using his own understanding, his own insight, his own carnality. But Joseph gives God all of the glory. Um, he understood that God needed a vessel in this particular instance to provide the interpretation. So therefore, Joseph hears the dream, but does not take any credit for the interpretation whatsoever. And what Joseph's doing here shouldn't be interpreted as prideful or boastful in his abilities or in his relationship with God. It's just simply him being a willing vessel uh, for God. And when I read this, um, it, it just brought me back to a couple of nights ago. I was attending um, in Tupelo, uh, Mississippi. There was this thing called Ascend Youth Conference. And uh, I don't know, many of, many of our listeners, I know some of our listeners have probably went the same night I went, um, but many of you may know uh, Reverend Victor Jackson. Um, he's a very, very um, well-respected uh, apostolic minister, uh, just started a church down in Orlando. Um, he, was one, he was there, um, and he, he spoke. And one of his sermon points was that we can be so humble sometimes that it actually can circle back into a state of pridefulness. Sometimes we get so afraid, especially those of us who, you know, have been in the church for a long time and, and we truly have a love for God. Um, and we want to have that Christ-like mentality, that, that Christ-like uh, lifestyle where, you know, we are the humble servant. We are the humble, you know, I am nothing. I'm nothing more than the dirt of the earth, whatever. Um, we, we get so caught up in that that we begin to be so afraid of being used by God in a mighty way because we're afraid of being of of offending God or stepping out of line. Meanwhile, God's on the other side. It's like, hey, look, I want to do something miraculous. 
but I need a vessel that's not going to be so afraid or too busy seeking humility that's actually going to step up and be the body of Christ that I need them to be. Joseph was reverent to God, and he acknowledged that any interpretation that would come from him was not his own understanding, but God was using him. And that's what God wants from us today, but the devil has shamed some of us into the state of such total humility that we can't raise ourselves up to be used by him. We've become proud of our humility. If that's if there is such a if you could wrap your mind around that, you know, that's where I was talking about in the beginning when he said, you know, our we can be so humble that it can then circle back into pride. It's like we we get this sense of pride in the fact of no, I'm more humble than you. No, I'm more humble than you. We seek this this just infinite state of humility that, you know, after a while, God's like, I understand you're trying to be humble, but I also need you to be bold. I also need you to work in my kingdom. You know, um, if we become so humble minded that we're too afraid to do anything to step out in faith uh, on God's behalf, then then we're not really being the vessel that he's called us to be. So I think Joseph is a great example of that perfect convergence of humility, but at the same time, boldly going and doing the will of God. So moving down into verse uh, 9 through 13, we see that uh, the dream of the butler and the cupbearer told to Joseph, and we see Joseph's response to the dream. Uh, so in this dream, you know, we see the cupbearer, he's restored to his previous position within Pharaoh and Joseph under God's divine direction informs him that he'll be restored within three days using the number of branches of the vine to correlate the number of days to the time of the dream to be fulfilled. Remember, God or uh, Joseph is not a professional dream interpreter. He did not go to school for this. He didn't learn all the lessons there were to do in this. Um, how is he supposed to know that three branches meant three days? It could have meant three weeks, three months, three years. It could have been something entirely different. Could have could have been symbology for something not even time related. Yet bo- Joseph spoke boldly because he knew that he was being the mouthpiece of God in that moment. And we should be the same way. You know, we're Holy Ghost filled, and God gives us a word to share with somebody. Then you know, even if it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us. We should go boldly and share that word to whoever that is in their life because that may be the very word that they need in their life. It doesn't have to make total and complete sense to us. We just have to be the mouthpiece that's yielding and obedient to him whenever he has that word and he needs that to be spoken into their lives. So um, from there, going down verses 14 and 15, those are really unique in that it's really the only time when we see Joseph ever self-reflecting about his current state. And this is when, uh, in the chapter, he's telling the cupbearer after he interprets his dream, he says, you know, hey, don't forget me. When you go back in the house of Pharaoh, don't forget me. I was kidnapped. I'm a Hebrew. I'm not even supposed to be here, but here I am. Um, notice that he's not complaining. He's just using his newly provided opportunity to get himself, try to get himself out of the position. It reminds me of the last chapter when Joseph was in the situation with Potiphar's wife. And the Bible says in the old, in the, uh, King James says he got himself out. Essentially, um, God created the means for Joseph's words to be carried to Pharaoh, um, by means of the cupbearer. But Joseph had to be the one to ask and step up and say, Hey, I know that you're going to go back. Can you please not forget about me? You know, sometimes we uh, just expect God to just take his hands and just lift us out of these situations miraculously with us just sitting there wallowing in our own self-pity. 
Um, but sometimes it takes a little bit of action and initiative on our side to get the ball rolling. And I think that's a good example there. So verses 16 through 19, we see that the baker has been present this entire time. Now he wants his dream to be interpreted as well. So notice in verse 16, though, that the baker, he didn't want anything, uh, didn't say anything, I should say, until he saw that the first dream was very positive. Now, in this time, in this culture, it was very common to have magicians, soothsayers, or whoever to, quote, interpret your dreams, but it was always for a cost. You know, it was always a gimmick um, to take advantage of those that were just really kind of hoping for any kind of good fortune to come into their life. Um, the cupbearer wanted a true interpretation. He was very perplexed by his dream, but the baker wanted kind words and a prosperous fortune. You know, he just wanted the good things. He didn't He didn't really care about the message. He just wanted something to tickle his ears, if you will. And concerning this, there's a couple thoughts around the baker and his dream. So one is because he only sought to have his dream interpreted so that he could hear nice things and have prosperous fortunes, God punished him and allowed his dream to be interpreted into his utter demise. The other thought is that if there truly was an attempt on Pharaoh's life, you know, if there had been this conspiracy set up uh, for the Pharaoh to be poisoned, um, that since the baker's dream led to his demise, that it was in fact the baker and not the butler that was guilty of said crime. Again, could go either way. No evidence really to point more so one to the other, but it's just a little bit of commentary there to kind of share with you. But an additional bit of clarity on the baker's foretold death, though. So though the Bible says here that he would be impaled, the Hebrew word here is more closely translated to being hung or hanged. Um, his head would have been removed, so he would have been decapitated. Then his body would have had a stake driven through it long ways, and he would have essentially been propped up or stood up uh, so that birds could feast on his flesh and this was a step beyond a typical execution of the day and it was an additional level of indignity and mockery upon the corpse of that particular baker so this was not your average ordinary like execution this was another step further into the realm of humility um now, going down in verses 20 through 22, we see that Pharaoh's having this birthday party, and he summons his staff, and he includes the banished baker and cupbearer. And at this party, we see that Joseph's interpretations do come to pass, cupbearer is restored, and the baker is killed. Um, historically, just a little fun fact, there's really no evidence of Pharaoh's any pharaohs celebrating birthday parties like we think of them today uh, until around the first millennium BC, which would have been uh, long after this particular set of events was occurring. Instead, what's more likely and could have been maybe lost in translation over the years is that this celebration may have been more in line with a coronation anniversary celebration. So in other words, it would have been a party more so instead of celebrating Pharaoh's birthday, it would have been more of celebrating the day that he came and rose into power to be the current Pharaoh that he was. Um, so then as we close this chapter out, we see that in the last verse, verse 23, that though Joseph has been faithful to God and has been obedient, the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. And we don't read about it until the opening of Genesis 41. But because of the cupbearer's forgetfulness, Joseph has to endure two additional years in the king's prison. So at face value, we get this initial anger, at least I do. I, I initially kind of get angry at the cupbearer. I'm like, how dare you forget about the very one who foretold your rise back into status? But 
we know we serve a God of no consequences. So we don't exactly know why God made Joseph wait two more years in prison, but think about it this way. Pharaoh's dream didn't occur until two years down the road. It was not yet time for Joseph to arise to the status that God had intended for him to be in. God had not forgotten Joseph, but God was still preparing the way and the means so that Joseph's ascension could happen. Maybe if the cupbearer had told Joseph or had told Pharaoh about it right away, Pharaoh may have released him back to his family or allowed something else to happen that would have taken Joseph out of the position that he was in so that when the time did come and Pharaoh did have this dream, Joseph may not have been available to Pharaoh and thus would not have had his opportunity to demonstrate the power of God and thus rise to the status that he was destined to be at. And again, had Joseph not been there, he would not have rose to power, and his family still would have died because of the famine that was coming to Egypt that we'll read about in the next few chapters. So, you know, our flesh is impatient. It just is. It's just that's what flesh is sometimes. Uh, We want what we want, and we want it right now. We don't like to wait, but sometimes the greatest blessings come after the longest waits. God wants to reward those greatly that have been faithful and obedient to him, even in the face of utter despair, even when it feels like God has forgotten you, that that whatever he has promised is not going to come to pass, that, you know, it was a lie, it was a trick, whatever, you know, God wants to reward those greatly that have not given up the faith and said, you know what, my promise is still coming. God's still going to bring me out. He has not forgotten me and I'm going to serve him. All the same, you know, until that day, and then on that day, I'm still going to serve him. The longer that you've been waiting, likely it means the greater blessing that may be in store for you. So don't give up on God, no matter how long it's been, because he is getting ready to do something great in your life. Just hold on just a little bit longer. Your day of ascension may be coming right around the corner. So that being said, that's all I have on this chapter. So I will kick it back over to you, Brother Ethan. Awesome job, AJ. I loved, uh, loved the thought there at the very end about being still being faithful and just waiting on God's promises. And it reminds me of the, you know, those who wait upon the Lord. I know it's like, you know, one of those cliche verses, but those who wait upon the Lord will renew those strength, their strength and they will mount up. They will rise up just like Joseph, right, out of, out of that prison. So um, really, really great thoughts there. Also, man, great observation on... Um, the uh, captain of the guard uh, being the person who who put Joseph in charge of the cupbearer and uh, the baker just totally, you know, probably because they don't mention him by name, but man, yeah, it definitely could have been Potiphar. I mean, that was his title in Genesis 39. I had to look it up just to make sure. I was like, wow, great observation. <laughs> so, uh, so awesome job, man, as always. Thank you very much. But all right. Well, good chapter. We had a lot to talk about, you know, for such a, a short chapter. So really good episode. But anyways, all right. Well, with that being said, hey, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in once again and listening. We hope you've been blessed. You've learned something. And uh, yeah, thanks for sticking uh, with us through uh, 80% of Genesis. Let's uh, knock out the last 20%. And I, I believe it's going to be great. So With that being said, y'all have an amazing week, and we will talk to y'all next week. All right. See you guys.